Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. A primer of Kazuo Ishiguro's work was presented by scholar Cynthia Wong to an eager crowd in the Lighthouse Grotto focusing on the author's place in contemporary literature. Cynthia's books on Ishiguro include Conversations with Kazuo Ishiguro and most recently, Kazuo Ishiguro in a Global Context. Thank you all so much for coming out on this really beautiful Saturday um, to hear about Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, I like to tell my students, well, this is my life's work, so please pay attention, right, sort of thing. Um, thank you so much to Lighthouse Writers Workshop for organizing this community talk, right, in anticipation of what I think is one of the most exciting arrivals of Ishiguro. It's um, been about 20 years. Uh, he came in 1995 to promote the unconsoled, and annually, um, well, not annually, but whenever his books have come out, I've said, well, are you going to come by Denver and see us again? And he says, well, that's not really my discretion, and he's always very polite about it. And so to hear that he was coming for The Buried Giant um, is really, really amazing. So I hope that you not only get a chance to hear him um, with Erica Krause on Friday at the King Center, but also have an opportunity to read this remarkable novel as well. So um, I think we should also mention that Ishiguro will not be at this presentation. Um, just, but I've got some slides with uh, photos of him, and hopefully um, it's, it won't exactly compensate right, for the embodiment of Ishiguro, but uh, it, might, it might have to do. So um, whenever I go anywhere in the world to speak about Ishiguro and his work, um, I have to thank my sister, Amy Wong. She's a sociologist in California, and she called me when I first started teaching at UCD in 1992. I know um, some of my students weren't even quite born yet, but there you go. Um, But in 1992, she said, you know, have you heard of this guy, Kazuo Ishiguro? And I said, is he some Japanese writer? And she said, yeah, but he just won the Booker Prize for the remains of the day. And in 92, he had just signed on to do the film uh, of The Remains of the Day for Merchant and Ivory and served as a kind of a consultant on that project. But Amy said, you know, that novel was pretty good. It's about this butler. Um, But the one that's really interesting is A Pale View of Hills. And so my avid sociologist sister was telling me about um, the fragmented family, um, the way that, you know, this uh, woman was trying to reconstruct her life story and so forth. And she said, "Um, try it out. You might like it. And so um, I did. I loved it. And that following spring, I was teaching a course called um, Narratives of Kinship, and I used it as a way to discuss how we make up those stories about our family, and uh, particularly to find out what happened in those relationships, and also to find modes of um, healing. So um, I'm always really grateful for my sister for sending me on this, um, as I said, kind of a life's, uh, life's work. I also really want to thank my literature students at UCD. Uh, Really from 1992 to now, uh, sometimes they feel that I subject them to Ishiguro. I like to say that I'm introducing them to one of the best writers uh, in the world, um, but mainly for their insights uh, in, in classrooms. They've often given me ideas to think about his works that I really, you know, something that hadn't crossed my mind as I was reading it. Um, it's surprising, but sometimes they also disagree with me, um, and they spar with me, and uh, you know who you are. Uh, there are some in this room, but uh, my students have at Ishiguro's novels in a variety of classes, uh, critical writing, which is required for our majors at the university, and uh, Never Let Me Go is a favorite uh, in that class. 
Um, they've also read the books in 20th century fiction, contemporary world literature, and most recently in my international perspectives class uh, titled Post-War Japanese Literature and Film. Um, they've uh, watched the film versions with me of Never Let Me Go and The Remains of the Day, and we've talked uh, quite a lot about that. Um, so I thank them very much, too, for uh, embarking me and sort of keeping me on this journey with Ishiguro. Uh, my first published article actually was a very passionate disagreement I had with my students over the meaning of the first-person narrative perspective in that novel. And uh, my students found that Etsuko, who was telling the story, was actually schizophrenic, and she was making up this entire other story. And they said, well, she's just a crazy woman, right? And um, I knew they were wrong. Uh, <laughs> but I was a new I was a new professor, and I think I still really really respected students you know points of view and didn 't want to disagree with them too much. but I ended up writing an article um, that really discussed how the Nagasaki bombing um, constructed Etsuko in a way that she couldn 't have imagined, and so she 's really telling the story right after her daughter has committed suicide, and her second daughter is paying her a visit. And she finds herself returning to this past uh, right after the bombing of Nagasaki. And she remembers this friendship she has with this woman named Sashiko, who also has a very mysterious daughter named Mariko. And it's really a kind of eerie book. And I think it's what my sister was thinking uh, might be of great interest to me. So um, I I began thinking more about uh, Ishiguro's complex um, narrative strategies. And uh, so for today, I wanted to really talk about some of the ways in which uh, his fiction works its way into contemporary literature. And I want to start with a premise about literature that I think many contemporary authors, including Ishiguro, share with the nature, um, share about the nature of books and their readers. And the late Nigerian author, Shinua Achebe, really helps me to frame my approach uh, to thinking about Ishiguro's art. He says, people are expecting from literature a serious comment on their lives. This is what literature, what art is supposed to do, to give us a second handle on reality so that when it becomes necessary to do so, we can turn to art and find a way out. So it is a serious matter. I appreciate this remark about what is a writer's responsibility to what readers desire when reading literature. So literature is not only for delight, but also has a kind of moral or beneficial instruction as well. Um, When we look at the array of books published by Ishiguro, we can see that his wide-ranging subjects and literary forms uh, might appeal to Achebe's sense of literature as a serious endeavor. So this collage of Ishiguro novels and his short story collection, Nocturnes, um, and by the way, these are British covers, so if your own edition looks different, um, it's apparently a national issue. But I really like these uh, very colorful uh, texts. Um, Murakami also gives us a way to think about Ishiguro's writing, and I love that metaphor of writing and painting um, as these artistic endeavors. And he says, Ishiguro is like a painter working on an immense painting, the massive, sprawling sort of painting that might cover the ceilings or walls of a cathedral. It is lonely work, which involves huge amounts of time and vast stores of energy, a lifetime job. 
every few years he completes a section of the painting and shows it to us. Right? So I love the idea of this very large cathedral painting, um, but also the sense that by Ishigo's own admission, his literary production is really on the slow side. I actually don't mind because it allows me to reread the novels uh, in anticipation of yet the next one. Um, so the way that we sometimes think about Ishiguro's um, works is that um, we organize them, right? We try to group them. We try to find uh, family resemblances among them. And the easiest one to do is the first three set of novels. Uh, They do form a kind of trilogy in which um, literally elderly first-person narrators reflect on their lives following a crucial historical event, right? And so uh, each of these three novels has an elderly protagonist. Um, The first a Pale View of Hills was published in 1982, and it has widowed Etsuko now living in England as she narrates a time right after the bombing of Nagasaki, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, she's mourning the suicide of her first Japanese-born daughter and finds a way to tell her anguished story through the lives of another woman and her mysterious daughter from the post-war period. Um, The second novel, An Artist of the Floating World, published in 1987, has an elderly widower, Masujo Ono, who's reflecting on his career as an artist, uh, as a painter, in fact. He unwittingly reveals how his pre-war, pro-nationalistic paintings may now jeopardize his daughter's marriage proposals several years after the defeat of Japan in the Second World War. Um, My students in post-war Japanese literature and film just this semester finished reading the novel, and um, I think like most uh, first-time readers of Ishiguro, which I believe the students uh, were for this class, it both surprised and astonished them, and um, they couldn't really quite find exactly the ways that they liked or didn't like the novel. And I think that sort of amorphous sense of not knowing exactly how a writer has reached you is really quite compelling. And so um, these two novels set in Japan obviously had a lot of critics very interested in, oh, it's a Japanese writer who's now living in Britain who has great nostalgia for Japan, writing about Japan. And so uh, what does this girl do? He pulls a punch and goes... Uh, to England, where he is actually physically, right, as a person, he realizes after his family emigrated, um, he was about five at the time, um, and they continue to get kind of Japanese language books throughout uh, in anticipation of going back to Japan. But Ishiguro said that by the time he was probably about 12 or 13, um, and his grandfather had died, um, and they didn't go back for that, he realized that I'm here in England for good, right? But he writes his third novel, um, which uh, is probably the best known and perhaps most beloved novel uh, and published it in 1989. It goes on to win the Booker Prize, but I should also add that the other two books also won uh, literary prizes and really started catching people's attention. Uh, The Remains of the Day tells the story of an aging butler named Stevens who simultaneously regrets and feels ashamed of his life's commitment to a fascist master named Lord Darlington between the world wars. And so my students in contemporary world literature just finished reading this novel um, in the context of a number of things, uh, personal history, um, 
against a very public history, the way that we choose our life's work in the context of what we know at that time. And it's that reflection process that we get throughout this novel, uh, which is really premised on Stevens, who's now being employed by an American named uh, Mr. Faraday. And, you know, the whole house is not the way it used to be. Uh, the staff has been decreased, uh, errors are committed, and Stephen gets the idea in his head that if he takes this motoring journey, like his um, employer suggests, right, just get out of the house, Stephen, for a break, that he can somehow lure Miss Kenton, who has for 20 years been Mrs. Ben, because she she left to get married after her frustrations. I'm sorry, I'm giving away too much of the plot, but uh, <laughs> anyway, he's going on to see Miss Kenton slash Mrs. Ben, and a lot of memories flow into uh, the corridors of things and we begin to understand how Stevens comes to um, see his life whether he accepts it um, or not. What's remarkable to me is that these novels were written when Ishiguro was in his 20s and 30s, right, writing from a perspective of an elderly person uh, moving through regrets. And uh, he humbly characterizes his works this way. Right? In the first three novels, I was rewriting the same thing. I was on the same piece of territory, and each time I was refining what I wanted to say. These novels were about how somebody wasted his life in terms of his career. It's about well-meaning but misguided efforts to lead a good life. And so so there's a lot of like sadness and um, even a little bit of regret uh, in these particular texts. Um, the next three novels are sometimes colloquially called the Stress Trilogy because, uh, because they provoke a high amount of anxiety, even confusion, in terms of the characters' situations and the reader's comprehension of the stories. The Unconsoled came out in 1995, the last time Ishiguro was in Denver, and uh, it really represents his most radical departure to date from what many had regarded as the understated, eloquent, and even tranquil early narratives. Uh, the musician writer is found in disarray. He's kind of messed up. He has appointments that he keeps forgetting to keep. He has obligations and expectations that go unfulfilled. He defies the law of graphics, right? Uh, Hanging from interesting places while he's trying to observe things that he uh, doesn't actually have visual access to. Uh, It all takes place in an unnamed European city, almost as the Fisher Girls was saying, okay, I've done my two Japanese novels. I've done one in England. Now well, I'm not sure where this one's going to be, so I'm not going to name it, and, and it goes unnamed. Um, our contributor, uh, Claire Brandbauer, says that it's probably Vienna, and she argues very persuasively for that. Um, Ishiguro himself says, I was really interested in figuring out this kind of dream writing and a dream grammar, and others have called it a rather Kafkaesque uh, novel. So five years later, which uh, then seems to be Ishiguro's production rate, right? Every five years, he comes out with a novel. Uh, When We Were Orphans, published in 2000, uh, is about a renowned London detective named Christopher who tries to solve the mysterious disappearance of his parents from when he was a child. Um, Ishiguro returns to some of his realist modes, um, but the novel has a lot of nightmarish sequences and episodes, and it also, I think, is uh, among one of the saddest uh, of his novels. And so I don't want to give away all those scenes, but um, recently I was talking to my research assistant, Thomas Long, and he said, that scene with Diana and that one with Jennifer, he said, 
I don't know, I just couldn't stop bawling. And he says, and for a writer to hit that with every novel for me is really quite amazing. I thought I'd share that. I'm sure he didn't want me to tell you that he was crying when he was reading these books, but uh, there it is. Um, Ishigirl says, um, perhaps there's something about Christopher discovering that here's a man who thought he was fighting evil, and then he comes to discover that he benefited from this evil. And in, in some ways, I see that as a reverse of Stevens uh, from The Remains of the Day. Um, good news for writers, uh, for readers who liked Ishiguro's kind of subdued style. Uh, Never Let Me Go came out in 2005, ushered in a new generation of Ishiguro readers uh, who followed this very dystopic world of Kathy H. and her friends growing up in their beloved and fabled school called Hailsham. Uh, the musician Stacy Kent, with whom Ishiguro has been writing uh, song lyrics, says... This book broke my heart and left me raw for weeks. Right, So uh, I'm sure we will be quite restrained when we discuss this book um, after our break later. But it is uh, an incredibly sad book, and I personally made the mistake of reading that ending shortly before coming here and feeling a little bit sort of... Uh, you know, cut up myself. Um, but Isha Girl says, you know, um, although it's a story about mortality and death and dying and so forth, I wanted it to be a quite positive story. And he smiles when he says this. Um, so hopefully we can discuss some of these perspectives um, in our discussion later. Although he's been writing novels, um, Although he's been writing short stories, excuse me, and screenplays before publishing novels, Ishigirl's first story collection was uh, published in 2009, Nocturnes. Ten years after publication of Never Let Me Go, Ishigo takes on this global tour to promote his fantastical new novel, The Buried Giant, which I don't want to say much about because I know many people haven't yet read it. Um, but let's just say it's very interesting. Okay. That's broad enough, I think. Um, Ishigirl said, I feel I made a natural evolution from writing songs to novels. And here in Nocturnes, you get five of what seem like totally separate pieces of music, but they go together. Um, we should remember that Ishiguro really wanted to be a musician uh, before he wanted to be a writer. Um, he actually never really said, I want to be a writer. But when he finished university, he started looking into possible ways that he could channel his artistic energies. And he got a little tired of playing at the, uh, the Paris underground and wasn't making a lot of money. So he looked into a program at University of Kent and he said, whoa, you just have to write a bunch of short stories and get a degree and so forth. Um, and he was really delighted. Uh, it turns out that some of the stories he wrote there, uh, in fact, some of them became that first novel, A Pale View of Hills. Um, he changed the narrative perspective to fit in uh, the elderly Japanese woman's perspective in that novel. Um, so The Buried Giant, I have been reading some of the reviews um, about it, uh, and there's some interesting kind of literary um, arguments. Uh, he got into a bit of a tiff with the fantasy writer Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, some of you are nodding, like, yeah, he shouldn't have said that. And uh, yeah, he might have been a little more restrained. I was surprised that he did um, actually respond so um, vehemently right, uh, against fantasy fiction. But he asks, will reader follow me? Uh, into this? Will they understand what I'm trying to do? Or will they be prejudiced against the surface elements? And so um, I think these are great questions, and I hope that Erica uh, really sort of asks him these uh, at the King Center. Um, 
the next set of slides really talks um, a bit about what other writers uh, see as Ishiguro's contributions. And sometimes that term, a writer's writer, um, means that other writers really respect this writer, and so usually that's a really good thing. Some people say, well, that's really incestuous, but anyway, uh, he has a lot of endorsements from writers, and Murakami's a huge fan. Um, we already saw that really compelling metaphor that Murakami draws with uh, writing and painting, but he says, wow, you know, when, there are some writers who, when one of their new novels comes out, they send me running down to the bookstore to buy a copy, and then I put aside whatever else I'm reading and bury myself in their work. These days, only a handful of writers have this effect on me, and Kazuo Ishiguro is one of them. Right? And so I, I know actually some people who have Ishiguro on their list, but you probably have some authors who are like that for you, too. Um, but Murakami also says that in all my years of reading Ishiguro, he has never disappointed me or left me doubting him. All I feel is deep admiration for the infallible skill with, with which he has piled all these different worlds on top of one another. Um, and indeed, I think if you were to catalyze, ca- categorize those different worlds, you'll see a great variety in what Ishiguro um, has done. Uh, Salman Rushdie is another uh, writer who really... Uh, respects Ishiguro, and Ishiguro himself credits Salman Rushdie with opening the doors to non-white world authors in around 1980s, and this was roughly about the period when a lot of literature called multicultural um, authors uh, were finding much broader readership, and Ishiguro does um, thank uh, Rushdie for being among the first to kind of make this wave. Rushdie notes that ideals which Ishiguro shows us, can corrupt us as thoroughly as cynicism. With the remains of the day, Ishiguro turned away from the Japanese settings of his first two novels and revealed that his sensibility was not rooted in any one place, but capable of travel and metamorphosis. Um, I really like the travel and metamorphosis element. It tells us that Ishiguro is certainly a writer who is always exploring and trying out new terrain, uh, willing to sort of change um, as needed to tell the stories that he must. Um, Margaret Atwood is known for her own disputes with Ursula K. Le Guin, so see this sort of tightly uh, knit situation. And she coined the term speculative fiction, which is what um, a lot of people are finding to be uh, yet another apt genre to describe a kind of fiction that takes on a variety of uh, fantastical elements. Uh, She admires Ishiguro's subjects and writing, and she says that, you know, Ishiguro likes to experiment with literary hybrids. Um, to hijack popular forms like the detective fiction, like uh, science fiction. And he uses these for his own ends. Um, He likes to set his novels against tenebrous historical backdrops. Um, An Ishiguro novel is never about what it pretends to pretend to be about. And that isn't a typo. That actually is. uh, An Ishiguro novel is never about what it pretends to pretend to be about. And Never Let Me Go is true to form. Um, academic critics have loved uh, Ishiguro and praises him for his literary innovations and stylistics. Um, there are a number of book-length studies. This is the part of the uh, 
shameless self-promotion. The Kazuo Ishiguro in a Global Context actually just came out yesterday, so we're really excited. Uh, My co-editor is in Ankara, Turkey, and we did a lot of this by email. But I did uh, last November have a chance to reunite with her and celebrate this collection uh, representing writers from all over the world. Uh, We're really excited about it. Most of the books uh, by Ishiguro have mostly been a British affair um, and kind of male-dominated, so we as two women co-authors were really excited about this. Uh, Eugene Tao's book on the upper right-hand corner, Kazuo Ishiguro in Memory, is also the latest addition to this um, nice uh, sort of uh, cottage industry we have with Ishiguro books. And so we're really excited to um, have an opportunity to share uh, with others the kind of achievements that Ishiguro has um, given us. Sebastian Gross and Barry Lewis co-edited a book, New Critical Visions of the Novels, in 2010. And um, they identify an important element they call Ishiguro's ethics of empathy. And they say that this is Ishiguro's ability to make us care about the world, about other people, about ourselves. And they comment that what is also distinctive about reading Ishiguro's work is that it creates the sense that we are absorbed into a wider community that crosses geographical and linguistic barriers to stretch across the globe and through time. Right? I thought they covered a ton of terrain uh, in this really uh, lovely um, assessment. Um, there are nearly two decades of interviews that are collected Shameless self-promotion, just want to let you know. Uh, in literary conversations with Kazuo Ishiguro, um, I love this part that is in our introduction um, because he talks very much about who he is as a person as well as a writer and how he weds these two. Um, he says, I feel I am part of that generation for whom making something good out of your life, morally good, was a very conscious thing. This um, following comment that Ishiguro makes on writers takes us kind of full circle to Ishebe's remark that literature is a serious business. Um, Ishiguro says to Andy Sawyer, we're moving away from elitism to something which isn't afraid of modern culture, pop culture. We're moving towards a new seriousness. I just thought he'd look kind of handsome and brooding in there, so I (laughs) had to find a quote that would actually apply, so there it is. Uh, The next two um, slides are really, really personal to me, and it's really a pleasure to share them uh, with you. Uh, In 2006, my daughter Grace and I sat down with Ishiguro in London, and we talked about life and art. That's actually the title of um, the interview that's published in Literary Conversations. And we touched on the subject about raising children in the world. Um, Ishiguro also has a daughter. I think she was born in, uh, Naomi was born in 1992, and Gracie was born in 96. And Ishiguro noted, the question, what are we useful for, is the question that your daughter Grace asks, and one that Tommy and Kathy ask in the book Never Let Me Go. Some cold system says to Tommy and Kathy that they will be useful as organ donors, and it's the same as another system saying to Grace that someday she will be useful to the world economy. 
Um, as part of my first interview with Ishiguro in 2001, I was trying to pin down right, what motivated Ishiguro in his writing. Uh, was a quest for some truth? I felt that truth was always a fair question to ask. And Ishiguro, in his sort of usual courteous way, right, when he is kind of telling me I'm wrong, <laughs> he says, no, I don't think it's anything as specific as factual truth of the sort that historians might be after, or indeed that people are after in a court of law. As far as I'm concerned, it's more an appeal for companionship in experiencing life. And um, I think he really believes that books uh, have this uh, power, this conduit to bring people together and also to meld minds, right, which would be really difficult to do in this really vast global situation, but um, we're able to do it. Lastly, um, this slide I credit to my research assistant, Tom Long, who remember earlier he was telling me about how sad uh, when we were orphans was. He's actually in Omaha, but he sends his greetings. Um, he drew my conversation, um, my attention to uh, Kafka, the Kafka connection in Ishigo's art, right? Persistently, our conversations come back to Kafka when we're talking about Ishigo. And Ishigo himself has long admired writers such as Chekhov, Dostoevsky, and Kafka. And I just love this passionate declaration about what books can do, and I'd like to suggest that Ishigirl, um has done it and continues to do it. But we need books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea within us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to take any questions. Any questions? Mm-hmm. Yes? Could you elaborate on <clears throat> what it was that um, Ursula said recently? Oh, I didn't bring those notes. Oh. <laughs> Well, um, she said something to the effect that uh, the, the reading the novel was an unpleasant affair for her, that it was rather like a tightrope walker going to the audience below. Can you see that I'm a tightrope walker? Or something to that effect. That was one metaphor. But she also said that Ishiguro uh, seemed to despise um, the genre of fantasy fiction and was embarrassed. And so if he was, why was he using it so ostensibly in The Buried Giant? Yeah, it's really quite heated. Maybe others remember the, more pointed the quotes. Uh-huh. Was, um, on the subject of him despising the fantasy uh-huh. but trying to pull off a fantasy book. Right. She said it was like watching a tightrope walker falling from the Falling from the rope. I missed the part of the falling. They didn't have a tightrope Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you for elaborating that. I thought it was very provocative. Do you have a sense of what that means in terms of... A uh, variety thought, of things. Uh, yeah, she thought that uh, he was trying to take advantage of genre tropes mm-hmm. while holding his nose, basically. Yeah. And she uh-huh. thought that that right. was an inherent a project that would inherently fail. Right. And and then went on to say that it wasn't a good book. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. How did he respond? Um, I'm not sure if he's responded to that yet, or has he? I. Um, I know. I should have brought those notes. I had those, and I said, well, I was doing a presentation in praise of Ishigirl, so I shouldn't even mention this at all, but, but you, would, you would find out eventually. So uh-huh. I think it's interesting in the context that the, there was also a quote from Margaret Atwood, because 
you know, it's been interesting to me how she is very specific about not allowing anyone mm-hmm. to call her a sci-fi writer. That's right. That they have to call her a speculative fiction writer. And how so many people refer to Never Let Me Go as a sci-fi novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that kind of triangle is really interesting. Yeah, and I think that it's fair for people to call it what they want, and academic critics will take issue with it too. And you know, everyone gets a little territorial, um, rightly so. I think you have to protect the boundaries. Um, and um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what to think about Ishiguro exploiting these obvious genres. I think that other uh, thinkers are more eloquent in talking about them but um, I I sort of feel that the tools are there, he's a writer, he has a right to try the tools, he has editors who will tell him like don't do this right or in this case with the buried giant his wife saying no honey this won't do and then he goes back and rewrites a whole other novel which is why maybe it took that long but um, I know that you'll have opinions about it and I'm happy to hear what some of those are too. Yeah Jessica What's what's the experience of being a making this man and his work so academically valuable like that he's still alive and working and like knowing him or meeting him I think that a lot of us sort of think of oh well you know you go back and you you're writing about some writer of mm-hmm. who's been dead for years and you don't get to engage with and sort of watch grow and change what what is you totally described what it was like just to have that kind of excitement that's that's it i mean it's it's exciting it's very interesting it feels momentous and it feels that you know like murakami you rush out and buy the next book you support what the writer's doing you support his causes for writers which is to connect people in a world of ideas and also to look in books for ways to think about um, ideas and issues i think one of the great crises is that we sometimes fall flat we don't know what to do with things. We see that in the characters in some of his novels, for instance, when they're facing death or they're dying and they say, what What has my life amounted to? So um, Ishigo gives us a lot of things to think about that are so relevant. Um, this is not to say that dead writers aren't worth writing about. I know you're not saying that, right? But it has been uh, quite an interesting ride and journey. I never thought that I would be taking it this far. I really just wanted to set my students right from uh, that first class on a Peo Vios and say, look, guys, it's, this is about this traumatized woman. And um, then I had the opportunity to write a book for Northcote House. And by then he had published five novels. So I actually had a book length monograph that I could share. Um, and that was the end of it. But then people would say, hey, so what do you think about? And then I would find myself in yet another Issue Girl project, even though I want to do other things. But it has been really exciting. And I think you actually capt- captured that in your question. So thank you. Carl. Um, about the previous topic, um, science fiction or not, a fantasy novel must be not. Um, a number of writers, Stanislav Lem is another significant writer who hated being called science fiction. Mm-hmm. And which, about, which author? I missed what you... Stanislav Lem. Okay, I don't know this. Okay. Okay. Anyway, um, really important writer, truly mm-hmm. important, but science fiction-y. Uh, and it occurs to me that these guys, the writers, who don't like the label or whatever label, are really reacting to what they perceive is the readership that they think is, you know, indiscriminate and mm-hmm. you know easily satisfied with tricks or like motifs like uh, say vampires. Right. Or, well, you just throw it in mm-hmm. there. You're, you're, so there are readers who will eat it up. Or um, dragons, as right. seems to be the right. the craze so, these days. Uh-huh. There's a there's a touch of 
to me, overreaching about trying to tell people that my writing is not one thing or another. Where the writing stands for itself, and we can be writing it once with Go, it's not published. Uh, it's out there, and then people read it whichever way they want. They just don't like the idea that it's being read shallowly. Right, and I think most people um, reject the idea of being categorized in any particular ways, right? We so kind of don't like people writing, to... Not the writer, not being a writer. About the writing itself. The yeah. Qual- yeah. You know, um, Shigeru's book, you know, mystery novel, then a science fiction and fantasy, mm-hmm. all those. Didn't want to be called those things. Uh, I think it's just uh, um, slightly unfair to ask people not to call it whatever they want to call it. I, I, I think I would agree, but... People will do it anyway, right? <laughs> and and make of it what what they will. So, um, but he's always commented on, you know, how he want, wanted to be, resist being categorized in particular ways. Um, and and I think most people in general sort of feel that way about their because we want to see a, a sense of uniqueness in what it is that we're doing. But you're right; it's the readers also who then can rely on uh, genre tropes, right, to carry the day or to just get a fast read. I don't know. I mean, sometimes you just need a kind of um, snack food read, right? You don't really want to think ponderous, deep things. You just want to like, oh, well, here's something that is going to be magical, or the bad guy's going to enter here, or here's where you know the god of the machine will save the day and so forth. Um, so I think there, you know, I'm just happy when anyone reads anything. So it's, <laughs> it's like, just keep reading. It'll be, it's fine. But um, as I said, we all will have an opinion about this. And I think that they're the fair opinions. Sir? Um, I was just wondering, uh, do you have a sense of why, as a young novelist, you want to focus so much on the idea of being an old person looking back? I don't. I have asked him um, about this after the publication of When We Were Orphans because I started seeing this very clear motif of the elderly person facing death, looking back on life. And um, even in Never Let Me Go, even though they're younger people, they're very close to death, they're reflecting and so forth. And um, we always try to psychoanalyze Ishiguro whenever we can, and we ask him about his childhood, right, his fixations or anything, and we want to peg him. And I asked him if there had been any traumatic experiences that caused him to uh, latch on this, and he said, nope. Um, my life has been actually really quite nice, except except actually for the death of my grandfather, uh, which affected me very profoundly because my parents moved us all here and then we weren't able to go back. Um, but I'm not sure uh, what it is. And I have asked him and he sort of said, no, I, I don't, you know, I just sort of write what I need to write. So, yeah, sorry that doesn't answer it, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, one of my friends pointed out that uh, in both Never Let Me Go and in The Very Giant, there's this story about, you know, if two people love each other very, very much and they really love each other, mm-hmm. and that will sort of be some sort of trump card for whatever the conflict right. is. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I haven't read all of his books, and so I'm wondering, does that keep reappearing not that explicitly, <laughs> yeah, because in Never Let Me Go, it's that wish for deferral, right, that carries uh, Kathy and Tommy to that last scene with Miss Emily and uh, Madame, and they've been, you know, uh, 
Kathy's not really sold on this, but once she gets the idea from Tommy, who's been doing these animal drawings, the whole point with art being an entry or a look into the soul. And in that soul is where you find your soulmate and you're connected. If you are blessed with this connection, it may save you. Um, I think it's a lovely metaphor. And I think, unfortunately, Ishiguro disabuses us of that myth in his novels, unfortunately. Um, It's also very explicit in The Buried Giant, as you note. Uh, in the scene with the boatman and Beatrix and Axel. And there are costs associated to having this wish and this fantasy. But um, just really quickly, since I hadn't actually thought of this, I would say that in the other novels, there isn't anything that explicit, like a wish for a deferral of death in the hopes that love will save the day. I think you might have variations in in a less apparent way. And now you've given me a way to look at yet another thing that is happening as a, a recurrent idea in Ishiguro's novels. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm just curious if you've heard anything that would relate to a sense of being Japanese in exile or having grown up in exile in London. He doesn't think of it necessarily as an exile. But is there a sense of being that? Like, he might not say, in my mm-hmm. experience, Koreans and Japanese both do not... The idea of, for instance, a sort of kaleidoscope of world cultures mm-hmm. is kind of new, right? So being a foreigner, it, and you always kind of, at least similarly, tend to be a foreigner longer in some ways than uh, you might otherwise. So there might be, and I've seen this in other families other than my own also, that there's going to be a, kind of a, a sense of diminishment or shame or an alienation that is a kind of a unique thing, right? It's uh, not... Doesn't, it's not quite the same, I think, as it would be if the situation were reversed. Um, does that come? Have you noticed any? Does that theme? Does that come out in any, any sort of way? Of the eg- eg- exile, oh, yeah, the, ca- uh, the character uh, in exile. Yeah, alienation, or you know, having been cast out alone, or not fitting, or the 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 casting out is um, usually not very explicitly physical, but it certainly is emotional. And it's um, related to people not belonging, that sense of being outsider. Um, Ishigo hasn't spoken a lot about being an outsider in England as a Japanese person. And I think this might relate to how earlier critics looked at those two novels and said, well, obviously he's writing about Japan. He's Japanese, right? Even though he had, for most intents and purposes, been raised in a British society um, and probably saw differences in the values that he was raised by with his Japanese-born parents and he himself being Japanese-born. And so that sense of not occupying one space you know, solidly and being in two situations, um, having two kinds of ethnic identities or cultural identities um, probably play in here. And in his books, that sense of not belonging, of being outsider, is probably more in an emotional way um, as well as in the way that we reflect intellectually. So I, I feel like that's a very abstract answer uh, to, to your question. But, um, are there other questions? Yes. I was just listening to an interview and he was talking about the remains of the day and someone mm-hmm. asked him, well, do you feel that you're a good person to have written it? Because in some ways, even though you grew up in England from five onwards, you still had a little bit of an outsider view so you could be more, you could notice more things. Mm-hmm. And he said in some ways that was true because he said, you know, even though I was growing up in England, very much at home, we were a Japanese family. Right. And so he said he's had both, 
you know, kind of feeding in. But actually, on the comment you were making earlier, I was thinking of Chiang Mai Lee at Princeton oh. and his work. And he often says he doesn't want to be categorized as one or another kind of a writer. He just wants to be considered a writer. And I think that that is very true, especially today, for so many writers, not necessarily just Ishiguro, but um, other writers that are perhaps going into other areas where they hadn't been known in before. And this whole idea with the science fiction and the speculative, you know, mm-hmm. all of these things, unfortunately, it just kind of boils down to you want to like get everybody together in a room and do a group hug <laughs> and go, everything's going to be okay, because everybody's just telling good stories. You know, to, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. And if we spend too much time splitting hairs on how we get to that end point, mm-hmm. I'm afraid we'll miss out, so... Yeah, and on the remains of the day, he said, all that Butler stuff, I, I did research, but I made a bunch of it up, too. <laughs> Sorry to tell you that, but he, I think he said it more eloquently, like, I created Stephen's world based on my research and my imagination. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's, it's very convincing, though. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to me talk about Ishigal. I really enjoyed having this company with you. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.